you know, I've, I've really prioritized the skills and the opportunity to be really rooted in super deep user insight, like really understanding the problem you're trying to solve for somebody. Like, why does this matter? Welcome to the Leadership Initiative, where we explore the art and science of leadership through thought-provoking conversations with experts, thought leaders, and change makers. Whether you're a seasoned leader or just starting out on your leadership journey, this podcast is designed to provide you with the tools and inspiration you need to lead with purpose and make a meaningful difference. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Lori Kendall, a faculty member at Ohio State and the academic director for the full-time MBA program here at Fisher College of Business. We have a very special guest today. Chris Phillips is an experienced product design and technology executive with over 25 years of experience and is currently the vice president and general manager of Geo at Google. Chris leads Google's worldwide portfolio of Geo products, technology, and business, including Google Maps, Waze, Earth, Street View, and the Google Maps platform. Prior to joining Google, Chris spent over a decade in music technology at companies like SiriusXM, Pandora, and Amazon Music. Before that, Chris got his start in over 13 years at financial technology companies, companies including Intuit and Accenture. Chris holds a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from The Ohio State University, Max M. Fisher College of Business. Chris has delivered profitable revenue growth by incubating and scaling new product offerings, as well as operating and innovating existing product portfolios. He has led the definition of product vision, roadmaps, and operations, resulting in revenue and customer engagement growth. His experience includes the creation of new products, expanding to international locales, introducing new business models and monetization methods, and entering new customer segments across business-to-consumer and business-to-business types of models. But now to really do what Chris does means engaging in customer insights and data to drive vision and delivery. He creates cohesive partnerships with internal and external stakeholders to fuel a successful business product, and technology ecosystem. He's passionate about developing leaders and teams. He serves as an executive sponsor for diversity, equity, and inclusion in belonging in technology. Above all, Chris Chris seeks opportunities to deliver experiences customers love, solve challenging customer technology and business problems, lead and introduce game-changing products at scale, and above all, to foster creativity, inclusion, and inspiration. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here today, particularly because today, I believe, is homecoming weekend. I have a first question for you. I'm going to ask just a couple of background questions, and then we'll continue in our conversation. Chris, look, That was a long, impressive background I just read out. Could you just talk a little bit about your journey to where you are today at Google? 
Yes. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, I'm such a proud Buckeye. And while I'm in a really exciting job where I get to work at the intersection of business and advanced technology and impacting billions around the world, it started for me really back here at Ohio State. You know, as an undergraduate student studying finance, I worked almost you know full time at a local bank and worked my way up. And so I was dealing with lending and bank operations. And I started as a teller, then I was writing loans. But it really started here at Ohio State where I learned how to manage multiple activities, of course, focusing on my, my academics, but also working and learning about leadership. And that positioned me really well to kind of enter the workforce. The thing about my journey, you know, I came from a family of bridge and highway construction. And I would always joke with my my dad that, you know, he was working on building things in the physical world. And I had this desire to also be a builder, but in the digital world. And so I've been, my whole career has been going from working in money-related products and financial services to music-related products to now mapping-related products. But all of it has been underpinned by, you know, solving important um, customer and user problems transforming how they do things using technology. And it started with like online banking. I mean, talking to the students, can you imagine? Do you remember back in the day, you used to write checks and stuff them in an envelope and put a stamp on it? You would never, I mean, you'd only do that now if you absolutely had to. So the way that online banking transformed consumer banking, and then even moving on with into it where we took advanced software to do like QuickBooks, and accounting for small businesses and let small business owners do it on their phone and the changes from how that moved from from the form factor of a laptop onto mobile how the business model changed from buying up front to a subscription and then going on to amazon where was a part of the company moving from selling physical music vinyl and cds and starting in selling digital downloads to actually offering streaming and having not just a retail experience, but introducing a consumption streaming experience with ultimately launching Prime Music. So exciting to be a part of these transformations where building new products, solving new problems, things that really you can't imagine going back to the old way. And doing that in music technology, going from like traditional radio services to streaming and personalization. And now I get to do that at Google on one of the biggest stages in the world with products that really matter to helping people navigate and decide where to go with confidence, you know, helping keep um, cities operating. Uh, there's so much goodness and purpose in all the products I've worked on. So my journey has been about a builder and trying to do things that matter for the world. You know, what you really just said is you are so much your father's son mm. because you are a, a construction you are a construction guy in creating the worlds in which we live in, in the digital space. And how you've gone from the way in which our worlds work in the physical exchange of money to how we experience what we hear and what we love and how we experience what it is to be really human in terms of music and spoken voice and recorded voice and the transmission of that to finally how we literally navigate in our world. Dude, you really are a builder of highways. They just happen to be digital ones. Wow, thank you. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> so now, as 
somebody who has clearly enjoyed a successful career to date, how do you how do you characterize career success in terms of skill, opportunity, and having the good fortune to be at the right place at the right time, which in technology, in fact, really does matter. It is true. And career success, you know, I think there's so many different definitions. And I always, when I get asked about that, that word feels so loaded. And I think it's a very personal thing. Like the way that different folks, different people in different places in the world. Uh, so, but for me, you know, so from my perspective and for me, um, you know, I've I've really prioritized the skills and the opportunity to be really rooted in super deep user insight, like really understanding the problem you're trying to solve for somebody. Like, why does this matter? And so I've always been, you know, deeply interested in and almost studying like why something matters. It's like, let's build this new product. Okay. Great idea, but there's a novelty factor. And then there's like a, a real need and problem you're solving. And then, okay, that's a cool solution, but will people use it? You know, one of the things I learned early is like, how do you drive adoption of something? Well, if it's really rooted in solving a real important need, or it makes your life so much better, you can then get real adoption. So I've, I think that skill of being really focused on the user and, and the companies that I've worked for, I will say a common thing around each of them and the, the CEOs and founders of those companies is real customer user obsession and like what we can do for them. It's been a common thread. So that's one. I think the, the, the skill and opportunity has also been around for me helping build teams and building humans and people and, and lining them up around an exciting and purposeful vision, but then getting quickly obsessed around the execution. Because at the end of the day, you got to build it, you got to deliver it, it's got to work. And, but there's something about activating really great talent with the ability to understand why we're doing this. And when it's really clear People jump out of bed, they invent new ways. And, you know, younger in my, earlier in my career, I used to obsess on how we're going to do something. I, I feel like the trick has been more to get everyone really pumped and clear on why we need to do it and what the parameters are, including the business model, including the cost structure, including the technical constraints, or maybe there's a new technology we need to go after to do this. So those are some of the skills and opportunities. And, and you're right, the right time at the right, there's something about, um, keeping your, your eyes up around what's going on in the world. And you see companies that have been super successful. And I've been fortunate to be there to run and operate established products. They're actually quite popular and doing well and have good business models, but having to build the next generation of it, invent the future. And that's that's harder than it sounds because it's easy to stay in your lane on what you've always done, but embracing new tech, embracing a new business model is is scary. So helping teams and helping businesses go through that has been something I've always really enjoyed doing. And I think that's been kind of the right place at the right time, because these have been like the movement to mobile or the movement to the internet, you know, for doing business, the mobile revolution, you know, streaming, uh, now look at advanced AI. So these are all key moments that I've just been fortunate to be working on an important customer problem where you can apply that technology. You've really said three things there, and I'm going to use that to uh, jump ahead to entrepreneurship and innovation. 
But to summarize this last little bit of our conversation, and we'll, re we'll return to one of the questions when we talk about leadership. You said three things that I found extremely interesting. Number one is that it's so important to be relevant in what problem are we solving? What are we trying to get done, right? Whether we talk about Clay Christensen, what, what, what did you hire that thing to do for you? What did you hire that product to do for you? What job were you trying to get done? And to make sure that that cool thing that inspires us, because it is that creativity, it is that innovation. At the end of the day, if it doesn't pass and solve a real human need, nobody's going to buy it. Or it's a technology whose time has not come. But the second thing I heard you say, it's not so much about you having the answer of the right thing to do, how to execute and how to capitalize on it. It's the fact that that why is embedded in the lives of the people around you. So their why, why are we doing this? Why is this important? Why does the business model have to make? Why can we have to achieve profitability? Why we can't regard, disregard constraints upon our business, that they take that as their why as well. And they take it as their shared vision, their mission, their purpose. And then the third and the final thing I heard you say was, you talk about that it's important to be in the world, but it's also important to be of the world. That if all, all you're doing is in the world and you're focusing on what's right in front of you, that six inches in front of your nose, you're going to miss the curves and the changes in the direction that are coming. In order to be able to see those, you actually have to be able to pull yourself up, you have to pull yourself out, and you have to take off the blinders and look side to side and say and wonder, what about? Is that fair? That is absolutely right. Yeah, cool. So as I tell my undergraduate and graduate students that while we tend to think of entrepreneurship as starting a new venture, which are some hinge points that you just reflect upon in your own journey, an entrepreneurial culture can exist anywhere, including a well-established going concern. So how do you nurture an entrepreneurial culture within your organization at Google? Yeah, I love this question because there's so much excitement around what you'll hear. Like, I want to be part of a zero to one. You know, I want to build a brand new thing. And there's a thriving startup communities and, and inventing things from scratch is exciting. But there's also a lot of invention and in starting things from scratch inside of big companies too. And it's a little bit more challenging though, in some ways. And it's also easier in some ways. You know, I was at a startup at one point and, you know, you have the challenging of funding and protecting payroll and, you know, the challenge of like building teams and a brand and, you know, getting started. Keeping the lights on. Keeping the lights on. And so what I loved about, you know, four years I spent in a startup way back in the early 2000s was I, I learned a lot of those things. Building and being entrepreneurship inside of Google or inside of an Amazon and into it um, has also been something that I've been really fortunate to do. And it goes back to uh, the thing about spinning up a new effort, a new product that's rooted in this typically an additional new problem that we can solve or go deeper on for the customers. And many times in the bigger companies, it's you might already have these customers and users who sign up for your product do a job for them that they trust and rely on. And the startup idea might be kind of um, a new type of job that we're credible to do because they trust us for one thing so we can do something else. And, and or it could be changing the job we do for them to do it in a more modern way. So if you imagine, you know, at Amazon, I go, it's my go-to for when I wanted to buy music 
in a physical format. And many, you know, companies were offering to sell, you know, digital downloads. You think of the iTunes of the world. And so Amazon making that move to actually take one of its original categories and start to sell digital versions made sense. But this new job of actually letting you stream your music was not really what the brand was known for. It was kind of a new adventure to say, let's actually stand up products that actually will let you stream and consume what you bought versus just selling it to you. And that being out there is starts with having to really understand the problem you're solving and helping get it funded and then building belief. But even the underlying systems are sometimes at odds with imagine how you would search to buy music is pretty different than how you might search through your catalog of music to play something tonight to hang out and enjoy Friday night. So it's kind of this extension of it. So it really requires to sell in belief around we're credible to do this new job. Um, here's how it's different. And we need to create space because we can't just repeat what we've always done. And I think to be a successful kind of entrepreneur inside of a big company, you have to really be a champion, just like you would be a founder at a startup of that idea and the customer problem you're going to solve. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the downfalls I've seen is when groups get too far out from the core, there's something about this idea that the advent, the ventures I've seen really work inside the big companies where they truly spin up something new and it works is where they still keep a connection to the core business. And, and if you stay too close, you end up, the, the invention gets kind of swallowed back into the main line. You know what I mean? Like, and your, your, your costs are compared to the profit margins of the core business. And, and then there's no way to go forward, but if you can keep Keep that independence, but still explain why this is valuable to the core. And actually, don't be afraid to say success is that we bring this back into the core, you know, into it going out into new countries around the world to actually bring financial services to um, emerging markets was brand new, not just taking a U.S.-based company, primarily in the U.S., to new countries, but actually completely different user behaviors and understanding. And in many cases, small businesses were scared and nervous about, why would I want to keep my financials in software? Like, that doesn't even make sense for me. So having to really think differently about the problem you're going to solve, but then with the mainline core business, had to keep showing how this is a big market. There's a lot of businesses out in the, in the rest of the world that we can help. And it's really important, but the way we're going to help them is going to have to be a little different because the way I think about a small business in India or in Southeast Asia is very different. But hey, mainline core business, this is a big market. And how we monetize it will be different. How we pay for it is different. So keeping that thread or connection and the excitement of the of the new venture inside of a big company is really key. If you get too far out, though, it, it falls off and it feels like it's easy to cut, you know, when things get tough. If it stays too close and gets bounded in with the core business, then it's got a different issue. So it's that art. Yeah, very much so. So I could point to three seminal papers that you just gave a masterclass in that would save somebody from reading about 80 pages. But I'll summarize what I think I heard you just say. First is that an established business will eat its young if the invention is so close to its core business that it will inevitably get compared with the margins and the profitability of the going concern. But if the business is too far away from home field, 
there won't be enough assets that the new that old co can transfer to the new co for the new co to stand up on its own two legs and to be able to be successful in its own right. And that's just from an internal perspective, from an external, from an external perspective, the market will look at that new co and say, who the heck are you? I love it. <laughs> and the third and the final thing that you said is that you really have to contextualize what problem you're trying to serve. Uh, what, 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 what do you, what problem, what problem you're trying to solve that is specific to the type of audience because a small business owner in Sri Lanka is going to have very different needs and very different concerns potentially than a small business owner who operates street food chat in Delhi, who operates uh, a small takeaway cupcake bakery in downtown Columbus, Ohio. And in such case, the way that we automatically assume that some software that works in one market will automatically work in another market will make no sense at all when we understand that they do somebody in another part of the world is going to do banking on something other than a laptop or something other than a smartphone. And that you have to be sensitive and aware that if you're going to deliver digital functionality, you have to contextualize and what are they doing today and what should they be doing? That is exactly right. And mm -hmm. this idea of you have to almost leave behind what the company and even you think the answer is because people bring their own bias and they bring their own experience. And I've built super successful financial software in the US. Of course, that will be very similar to the needs in these other countries. But if you enter with humility and empathy and really listen, you will find that they care about their financials, but their trust for the technology, their interaction with government, their local environment, how business is done. You have to really be enter that with like a heart of, of listening and learning and then use those skills to say, okay, this is a slightly different problem because it, if you want adoption of your product, even like who is going to offer the product? Should Intuit offer this directly or should we partner with a large bank that's trusted? Who are the brands that are trusted in market? So the best product, and I've had some products that didn't succeed. And, you know, some of the learning has been, you've got to be really careful who you partner with to help you bring your product to market. And that is really key. So, but back when my, and when I worked at Intuit, I feel like that's where I really got my advanced degree and deep customer understanding. The company's really obsessed. I mean, Scott Cook, the founder, and you know Brad Smith is one of the most amazing leaders. They really, really focused on that. And they would even travel. We had traveled in, into India and we would even start executive meetings. I mean, these are powerful business people. And we'd start by listening to users, good and bad. And trust me, it takes a lot of like, you have to hold back when you're listening to users and what they care about or how they're reacting to your beta product. But yes, it's you have to really be open. I love that. So I want to talk about where that doesn't succeed for a moment, because I think there's a follow-up that might be really uh, interesting. Where do you see firms stop being entrepreneurial? And how does that impact competitive advantage for the firm? It's when you get larger 
and bigger as a company because of the success that the teams have built over years. It's such an amazing thing. It's natural. It's natural to want to protect that. And, you know, it goes back to the, the innovator's dilemma. And there's all, there's lots of books about that. But living in those environments, it it's really hard because established businesses and the work the team have done to get to where they are, where they have an amazing brand. I mean, and they have a great business model. And a lot of these products and companies, when they started, you know, Google just had its 25th anniversary. Can you believe it? It didn't start with a super obvious monetization approach. And now look at it being one of the most successful examples of the most advanced digital advertising to monetize what is a beloved set of services, whether it's search or maps that that really people trust and it has the highest quality. Those things take time. And so you know, when we are building and launching new products, which we're doing in, in maps, and I, I can't wait to talk about it, you have to really demonstrate respect and, and understanding of how the company got to where it is. But you also have to be aware that that's also that success is what can easily hold back the company from taking new bets. And so you have to really don't just sell the new bet, but help everyone understand how we're going to still recognize the importance of the core business and what we've done and, and the mindset and behavior uh things also as the company gets bigger it's arguably gets a little more slow like any other big place and more people are involved and some of the startup you know um, magic of just quick decisions and in the whiteboard on the room you you, you kind of have to bring along a lot more people and i think it's a leadership opportunity I look at like the types of leaders who can be great when there's 15 people to convince versus thousands of people versus an enterprise with a lot of success. It actually is a different leadership skill set to navigate that. And but it can get done. It's but it's also one of those pitfalls you have to watch out for. So that brings up I have to ask about the acquisition of Waze in 2013, because Waze now being part of that, you're your geo business. What are some of the challenges of leading employees through an acquisition like this? Waze was a lot smaller. Google's a lot bigger. So what was the challenges that you successfully confronted and what did you do initially and what did you do over time? Yeah. So it's in my experience, I've been fortunate to kind of be a part of acquiring, um, many companies at the different businesses I've been in to help and the strategies behind why you acquired a company and what, what you hope to get out of it. Oftentimes, sometimes different, you know, a new business, a certain technology, people, a new, there's lots of different reasons. And then even when SiriusXM acquired Pandora, I was on the other side of that. And what that meant, um, helping Sirius introduce digital advertising and streaming and personalization, you know, so with Waze, I wasn't part of the team in 2013 that acquired it. And so I more just more recently have kind of got to know the Waze team. But when it was acquired, the promise of it was to kind of operate independently inside the larger company. And that, for a lot of reasons, made sense. And that is just one of the strategies 
um, in doing different deals, sometimes the strategy is to immediately integrate it and capture the synergies, you know, all of those things. In that case, it was about let's let's offer an alternative in the market. It's got ways. It's got a really unique culture. It has a really unique user experience and design. And there was real magic and beauty in what they done. And and Waze has been so successful in having its user base become its creators. People don't realize that a lot of the mapping technology, a lot of the maps in Waze are built by map editors that are just passionate people who want to build maps. And the drivers that are signaling things that are happening on the road are really hyper engaged and passionate about helping other drivers. That's really unique. And it doesn't mean that the way Google Maps works or other mapping alternatives is wrong. It's just a really awesome choice. And so when um, the company made the choice to say, hey, you know, I think now's the time for ways to kind of be closer to the rest of the Google's location mapping products. It was we wanted to kind of still preserve the that unique magic that Waze brings, the brand love. So we purposely like having that option in the market. And I don't look at Google Maps driving as competing with Waze. I look at it as a really relevant, different choice that we're able to offer. But by having it be part of our geo portfolio, we can actually get a lot more there theirs because at the end of the day, we are engaging with cities and transportation departments on what roads are coming on or being closed. And we are doing things to help larger communities that are true for both. And, you know, there was some, um, uh, we had confirmed publicly recently that we actually are going to take advantage of Google's monetization technology inside of Waze. That's just an example of you've got to strengthen one part of your company. Why wouldn't we use it in a different part of the company? So that's an example that, you know, required some changes, but it doesn't change our resolve on having this um, brand and this application and its really passionate users continue to thrive. But we can also share some of the underlying technology and data that helps multiple Google products be successful. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is presented by the Max M. Fisher College of Business at The Ohio State University. For more episodes, find us on Apple, Google, or podcast.osu.edu forward slash leadership initiative. See you next time.